Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film Podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into the dark night in today's retro review episode. What's this? What's this? It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. What is this? A whole new world. What is this? I was very, very, very fortunate to get to see this uh, in theaters again. I They were showing it at my local AMC, and as one of my favorite movies, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to go check it out in the theater. It had been six years since I had seen the movie at all, and six years since I had seen it in the theater. I saw it uh, three times when it first, when it did its original run back in 2008. And then again, when they re-released it in IMAX uh, in 2012 to coincide with the opening of The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, They did a uh, special trilogy showing in IMAX uh, at my local AMC with... It started at like 6 o'clock in the afternoon and ramped up until midnight when The Dark Knight Rises played. Uh, which was amazing. I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed that experience. It was great. And I believe, and, and in, the in, in the interim, uh, I watched the film, you know, I, I got it uh, on DVD for Christmas, the year in back in 2008. I played that movie. I, I watched The Dark Knight countless times, countless times. Well, that's kind of true. Uh, you know, I... I it is technically countless because I don't know the exact number uh, for sure, but uh, as far as my spreadsheet is concerned, the number is 85 with this most recent viewing, and uh, that feels, if anything, that's probably low, but I, I think that I'd rather hedge lower than higher in this instance. But I would literally just like put it on the TV and like just play video games and when it finished, I'd start it all over and play video games and, and like, listen, uh, you know, we'd just be talking to people on the computer or um, who knows, you know, writing, doing homework or something. And I just play it on loop two, three times a day after I got home from school, you know, when I woke up in the morning for a long period of time. Uh, and then eventually, you know, the kind of insanity died down and uh, it became more of a let's watch this once a month sort of a thing. And then in 2012, I went, like I said, I saw the trilogy at in IMAX. And then I think a week later, I watched Batman Begins and The Dark Knight in preparation to go see Rises a second time in the theater with my then-girlfriend. And since then, I haven't seen it. That was the last time. Uh, and now, the reason, most of the reason for that is... In 2012, when Rises came out, I was already knee-deep into my current film spreadsheet. And so I had become far less concerned with re-watching stuff I liked and vastly more interested in watching things I'd never seen before to add them and their information uh, to my spreadsheet. I, I had changed the way I viewed movies. 
And so rewatching The Dark Knight was far less of a priority. Um, not that I ever lost uh, the the love I had for it. I, I always contained that, and it was mostly I don't know. Just just I felt like I think part of me felt like I needed the space because. I think if, if you're too close to the things that you love, I think you lose some of the appreciation that they have inherently. And it was great to get back. It's been so long, over six years, and really just kind of catch up. It felt like catching up with an old friend, how, how much I'd seen this movie. You know, it's a little, a little insane. Uh, if you think, let me see here, because I, I have The Dark Knight at um, 86th time, I was one off, 86th time, so I have The Dark Knight at 2 hours and 32 minutes on my spreadsheet, so if at 86 viewings, that's 13,000 minutes, or about 218 hours, or nine, a little over nine full days of my life, I've spent watching The Dark Knight. More than a, just more than a straight week of my life, I have spent watching The Dark Knight. And not, not that, like, that does not upset me in the least. I think it's an incredible film. Uh, it's widely regarded as such by the vast majority of people. It, it like most of the films, has its detractors and that's totally fine. I can, at least now, maybe not then, six years ago, seven, eight years ago, I, I couldn't necessarily see that side of things. Now I feel like I definitely do, uh, having seen the film more recently. But that's kind of that's that's kind of what I wanted to get into. That's uh, you know this isn't going to be me breaking down the film every step of the way because I'm sure many many people have done that, and I don't feel like that adds anything, uh, but I'm just in a position where I want to talk about the problems with The Dark Knight, uh, and, and whether or not they're worth noting, and, and why I, why or why not I think that they are relevant to, to how you view the film, and, and I think that there's something to be gained in that conversation, because just because a film is one of your favorites, just because you think a film is incredible, just because you think it's the best of that year or the best of that decade or the best of that genre, that doesn't mean that the film is flawless. And I, I think a lot of people out there would agree, no film is flawless. It, it's it's impossible to, to have absolutely no mistakes in a film, uh, whether they're mistakes made by a performer, uh, the director, something wrong with the writing, um, whether it's just that a particular viewer doesn't connect with something, whether you can't understand what's being said or interpreted or communicated. Uh, there, there's something somewhere along the line, whether it's a lighting issue or a, you know a score problem or the production design doesn't look completely authentic or the visual effects, uh, aren't seamless. So, something somewhere along the line in a film, there's a misstep. There is. 
it's in all films and some more than others and in some you forgive those those imperfections or or maybe those imperfections even add character to that film they make that film feel closer to 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 what you want because as viewers as the audience you know we in our own way are all flawless with our own imperfections and i think sometimes seeing those reflected back at us can can only serve to to heighten our enjoyment of a film and i i don't i doubt i'll be able to get that philosophical <laughs> with this but you know just the kind of idea that it's okay for a film to not be perfect and it's okay to love a film that's not perfect, I think, is is what I'm really trying to get at. So, let's, let's look at The Dark Knight, which is one of the very few films, uh, certainly six films, one of the six films that I've given a perfect 100 to. Uh, regardless of how this episode shakes out, it will still have a 100 at the end. And we can talk about that too, depending on you know how uh, brutal some of this critique is. Uh, but if I was I was on Letterboxd for the Dark Knight, because and I, I think I still haven't even logged it uh, from this recent viewing because I'm way way behind. But I, I stumbled upon one of the more popular reviews of the site, and it was a one star review. Um, it was it was a review from back in 2012 uh, from someone who had put off seeing the film that for for four years after it came out. You know, fine. And I'm not I'm not going to quote the review, but I'm going to pull their uh, points because they make it's a huge review. Uh, and and the user is Cohagen's heir. So. I don't know if this is the only person to have these particular critiques. This is where I've, I see them, and this is where I'm getting them from so that I can respond to them. So he is on Letterboxd. Uh, his favorite movies, for for a little, little, little um, context here, are the Lord of the Rings films, which I love as well. Uh, so, you know, it's not just a complete difference of movie tastes and so on, but... You know, I, I was intrigued. You know, this is my one of my favorite movies. This guy gave it a one, one star. Tons of people liked his review. What's going on? What what's what's he getting at here? So, he, one of the things that everyone talks about is uh, Heath Ledger. I don't. You can't talk about The Dark Knight and not bring up Heath Ledger. He was. An incredible force in this film. He ended up winning an Oscar posthumously, unfortunately, uh, for for his portrayal of the Joker. He took on a character that had, you know, the the prestige of Jack Nicholson playing in the past, uh, a character who had been voiced brilliantly by Mark Hamill in the past, and made him brand new. He, he gave us a, a completely fresh, original take on the Joker that was breathtaking, that was bone-chilling, and he was recognized 
for doing such a thing. And even if not, not, not to say that 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 Cohagen's uh, error is is the biggest detractor of this film, uh, but even he, someone who gave this movie one star, leads his review or or his cr- critical ask part of his review with reflecting and and um, praising Heath Ledger's performance because I think above all else it is the one thing you come away with and it it pretty much began this idea that superhero movies have a villain problem and you look at a movie like Justice League or uh, what's a more you know like Suicide Squad a lot of the DCEU movies uh, even a lot of the Marvel movies have villain problems and I, I, I forget where I saw it. Um, I saw it somewhere. Oh, man. And I wish I could think of who it was. I found some article about basically saying that villain problems stemmed from just how incredible the Joker is as a villain. Like, it's all it's all the more obvious that movies have that these superhero movies have a villain problem because we're looking back at Heath Ledger's Joker and he's just that powerful. He's just that strong in this movie. And I I I, I agree. I think you know, he set the bar so high and it's it's never been touched since then personally, in my opinion. You know, we've had, the MCU has definitely had good villains uh, since then, but none on this level. But here's here's where the critiques begin. Here's where the critiques begin. Is the Joker, a, a, like, a good, a well-written character, right? So we have this idea in our heads that the Joker is... Uh, or rather, not in our heads, but the film tells us in multiple parts where he doesn't have a plan, right? He's he's kind of just like flying by the seat of his pants. He's just creating chaos in his wake. And yet, pretty obvious when you're watching the movie that that's not possible. You know, so, so many of his schemes, and, and you know, he says he's not a schemer, but he's clearly scheme, a, you know, someone creating all these schemes. He is setting things up uh, very, very far in advance from when he's taken, you know, when he's captured and imprisoned, and you have that guy who comes in with the phone in his stomach, you know, he planned to get caught, we hear that from Gordon later on, he sets up the entire scenario between Rachel Dawes um, and and Harvey Dent, uh, you have all the, the the boats being rigged with explosives and and that whole situation like all this stuff is is set up now there are moments in the film where we do feel like he is kind of a little he's kind of improvising you know you get these moments where he he reacts to something that happened and you see him have to kind of like adjust his plan a little bit, which is fine. Uh, but but overall, he's definitely contrary to what how his character uh, claims a schemer. And the bigger question is, 
you know, what what about him works as it's intended. So, like, think, think of some of the things that happen around his character. Uh, if you look at the opening sequence, one of the most brilliant, like, heist action sequences ever, it's a cold open, it just, it just knocks you over from the beginning. As we go through and systematically each of his, each of the clowns takes each other out, uh, we get to till it's just him left. Um, you have William Fichtner as the bank manager uh, who tries to shoot him. You know, the great reveal of that it's the Joker behind the mask. And then he jumps into a school bus and, and drives away. And not only that, so the school bus backs in to the, the bank, then pulls away into a line of school buses. Which, it, it just, it looks great. You get this feeling when it, as it happens, at least for a split second, like, that was perfect. But then, as soon as you kind of step back from the scene, you're thinking, okay, well, how does no one recognize, like, how does no one see that this random school bus just ran into a bank and pulled away? Into like even at least these other guys driving the school bus had to have recognized what just happened, right? How how did this all take place with no with like no witnesses, no one able to tell you know who did it? Where to, how did he get away with it from that angle? You know, look at something. Look at later on in the film with the hospital. He's in the hospital dressed as a nurse when he confronts Harvey Dent, and he's able to just walk out of it. And join another bus, and I, I, I think for me personally, there's better explanation for the hospital scene. I, I, I don't know what the re- what the explanation is for the opening sequence, but for the hospital sequence, we find out that that particular bus is um, missing later on when Jim Gordon is talking about it with some of his other officers that they lost one of the buses. So that tells me that, like, Joker had control of this bus. His henchmen, whoever whoever you want to say it is, this wasn't a bus that just had, you know, hospital personnel on it. This is a bus that he got on because his personnel were on it. They had control of it. It was never in danger of leaving without him. Yada, yada, yada. Whether or not someone would have seen him coming out of the hospital, you know, fiddling with what obviously would appear to be a detonator, you know, something like that. I don't know. It it didn't, I I don't remember, I couldn't tell if there were already, if the other buses had already left or not, if there were people in the vicinity. Obviously, everyone was vacating the area, so maybe they didn't see him. They were too busy, possible. But once the explosions did start, if there was anybody around, they would have looked at the hospital. Most likely, car crash, can't look away. So not seeing him then kind of feels odd. But I, the bus thing, I can definitely, I, I can definitely wrap my head around the bus, the bus thing. I think that makes sense to me. Um. So. 
some just like we look at the Joker, he just exudes cool. You know, uh, we're just you know he he he's presented as this guy who at the same time he has everything everything goes right for him almost even at including the when he's taken down at the end but everything kind of in one way or another goes right for him and you know he he just he sets fire to an entire pile of money just because just because uh he he needlessly kills people that could work for him uh like the scene when he's in gambles pool pool room uh you know there, there's three henchmen three of gambles henchmen that he forces to to fight to the death to see who will join his team and uh i mean they totally all would have worked for him but you know he just he does these things and, I, and on the service level, they're presented as crazy, they're presented as chaotic, they're presented as fair. And then, I think if you scratch the surface, so much of what he does isn't, the, isn't that. And, and, and I don't think, I don't feel as though like this is diving into things that people have never talked about. But, you know, just some of the setups that, that are created... You know, I think there's difficulty in understanding how he's able to carry out all of these attacks. Where is he getting all these explosives? Uh, you know, they show the ferry boats, and they have ton like not only the ferry boats, but also with Rachel and Harvey, they have tons of barrels of 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 flammable liquid in them. Where did he get all this stuff? How did he have the time to like rig these places up without anybody noticing? Right? Where he did either either bought this or stole it? We don't see either of those things happen. They just do. And it it just it finds a way to you know when you step back like oh what what how did he this doesn't make sense, right? So the question then becomes, does it need to? And that's, I think, the best trick that Nolan is able to pull off in this film. Christopher Nolan, I don't think he's really concerned about whether or not the things, the, the practicality of what the Joker does is believable. We spend an entire movie with Batman Begins generally rooted in reality, you know, uh, this is like this trilogy is lauded for being, you know, a real practical take on Batman. And compared to most superhero movies, it is far, far more realistic, far more down to earth, far more grounded than, you know, anything in the Marvel Universe, pretty much anything else in the DCEU. And yet in this movie, we have the Joker who almost seems to manifest like explosives and people and just just money out of nowhere and uh, 
why why doesn't that just how how do so many people overlook these things and i think for me when i'm looking at the joker and how his relationship exists between the himself and the movie how it exists between himself and batman how it exists between himself and the rest of the mob uh between lat with lao and i think what nolan pulls off here is being able of is being capable of kind of pulling the wool over your eyes but successfully and i i think with with the guy whose review i'm kind of pulling a lot of this from it didn't work on him and that's fine i think it's it's a magic trick and you know i think most people want to be fooled but some aren't you know he's taking from the prestige the another film nolan made you know People want to have want want this trick played on them. They want to be deceived. They want to be fooled. They want to be tricked. And Dark Knight does it so well that all of its flaws are forgiven by so 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 many people. You know, I, you you don't care about where the Joker gets all his explosives from. How he finds the money to buy it. You know, what what you know it's it's just. This is a character who embodies chaos, as he tells us, and the actions that he does, be they practical or otherwise, are done in service of that notion. He, you know, he 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 sets up this this he rigs up these two buildings with Rachel and Harvey. And who cares how it happened? Who cares how he was able to pull that off without anybody seeing, getting all this stuff inside without anybody seeing, finding all the reserves of whatever it is, oil, flammable liquid that he that he put in there. It's it's the result that matters. You know, it's it's forcing Batman to choose between Rachel and Harvey. Two characters that one we know he loves and the other we know he needs. It's forcing him to to reconcile the fact that one died, and he had to make that choice. There's the you know it's it's you know you go to the ferry. It's it's creating this scenario where everyone has the opportunity to succumb to to this chaotic force that the Joker is, it's presenting the the entire city with this question of, do I kill this other, do I blow up this other boat to save my own life? Because, because at that point, he's, the Joker has fully established that he is willing to blow up hospitals, he's willing to blow up whoever, he's willing to attack the, uh, the mayor in the middle of broad daylight so you know you're not thinking oh this isn't this is a fake this is a sham they see the barrel you know the the explosions and explosives in the bottom and it all it's all successful as as a ruse as a as a device to further the joker's ideals ideas and 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 plans and schemes 
And so I think for me, I, I, I definitely recognize, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that necessarily could have been done or pulled off or happened or what have you. But does it service the Joker as a character against Bruce, against Batman, against the police, against Dent, against Gordon? Does it put, set him up in a put him in a position where, you know, we we understand his motivations and they're coming through to us and they're making sense and and it's furthering the narrative and pushing this these themes along? Yes. It does all those things. So, so you know, that's that's just kind of how that I don't know, like that. That's kind of what this the movie does. It looks at no, it says, "Hey." I'm going to tell you this story, and at various points, you may not be able to believe some of this stuff could happen, but uh, I'm going to tell you that it did, and you're going to buy into it because I'm going to show it to you in a cinematically, aesthetically pleasing way. It's going to fit the characters that is <clears throat> that's it's going to fit the world that I've created. It's going to further the themes and stories that I'm saying and and providing to you. And you're just going to you're going to like it. You're going to like the things that I'm showing you. And however however you want to slice it, like he pulls it off. It it works. But let's let's move on from Joker for a second. Let's move over to Batman, Bruce Wayne, Christian Bale. Uh, my my Batman, hashtag my Batman. Uh, his he is critiqued in this film primarily for his voice, uh, which is not modulated, but he's like making it deep and gravelly and and raspy to to disguise himself and. There's there's an entire subplot uh, devoted around uh, Reese, who works at Wayne Industries, who discovers, or, or believes he discovers, in his own mind at least, the identity of Batman being Bruce Wayne, which is correct, but is not explicitly confirmed at any point during the film. Uh, he's never confronted by Batman or Bruce Wayne and said... I'm Batman, but he 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 definitely knows enough to say, yeah, I, I I know who it is. And there's a moment in the movie where he decides he's gonna come forward and reveal that it, the the who Batman is. Uh, followed by the Joker calling out that if he's not dead, basically saying, you know, he'll he'll every, he, he incites the entire city. To try to kill this guy. And there's a critique about how do people not know who Batman is. He clearly has to be rich. He has to have the money to pull off this stuff. Um, there's the notion that this is completely 
counter to the thrust and narrative direction of the film. Uh, how do the people of Gotham not already know who Batman is? Uh, you know, I, I think the, there's there's just it's painted in a way that makes it feel superfluous. Like we have to stop all the the you know chasing the Joker and figuring out the Joker because he, the Joker himself, sends us on this basic side quest to protect Reese, to stop him from being killed, to prevent him from revealing who Batman is. I would argue that most everybody knows who Batman is already. They do. But no one's saying it. It's this sort of perceived truth that Gotham knows and the and, and you know, we see this sequence early in the film at at uh, Gordon's office where the cops are saying they're being told, hey, we're still looking for Batman, the investigation is ongoing, and on the wall you see, you know, like, I uh, forget, it's like Abraham Lincoln or Elvis, or you know, it's like these absurd people who could never in the wildest dreams actually be Batman. And I think that's not just a joke. I mean, it's it's funny, but there's so much more to that, in my opinion. I think the reasoning behind that and why it's portrayed so ridiculously is not to show that the cops are so bad at their jobs that they can't find an actual living person that might be Batman. I think it's more that they're not really looking. They don't need to find out who he is because they know who he is. They, They don't need to confront Bruce Wayne or Batman. They don't really dislike him. Obviously, Gordon has a great relationship with Batman. Obviously, the people underneath Gordon trust him and trust that they that trust his relationship with Batman. Gordon knows who he is. And it's that knowledge that allows a, a side plot or maybe not even with involving Reese revealing who Batman is uh, to be important to this movie. Because we've already established, we, Nolan establishes in the beginning, it's kind of ridiculous to, like, it's kind of ridiculous to think I, that you don't know who Batman is, you know. And Reese is this, is a character who. It, you know, he, everyone else doesn't have, like, actual physical proof that Bruce Wayne is Batman. Reese has it. He's, he's like, oh, I know it has to be Bruce Wayne because I see his, his, his Batmobile. It's right here being made by Wayne Industries. It's got all of his other toys. It's got all of his, it's his suit. It's his cow. I have everything. I can, I have definitive, definitive, definitive proof. Bruce Wayne is Batman. One plus one equals two. Now everyone else knows that one plus one equals two. But they don't have, you know, concrete evidence to prove that. Which is fine. But Reese, he's just giddy with, you know, this is an opportunity. 
And as you see, his first instinct is, give me money. To which Morgan Freeman kind of is like, oh, that's that's your plan. And then we get the Joker demanding that Batman reveal his truth, reveal who he is. And when Reese attempts to do that, Joker says, no, 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 no. No, that's, that's not how this is going to work. I don't want that. That's not. It's too easy. And I think, you know, on some level, you know, Joker might be the only character who doesn't know who Batman is. And, you know, he even says as much when he at first thought it was Harvey, um, but later realizes it's not. And, you know, he's not, he hasn't been living in Gotham necessarily this whole time we don't really know where he came from or what he where he was doing before this but he's not like as far as we're aware he's not a resident of gotham he's just this this passing tornado of of you know he's he's more of like an you know, ethereal, elemental being than, like, a person in the film. And so, if we're, tell- if we're thinking that everyone already knows who he is, then Reese's announcement isn't going to change much. You know, it's, it's a media parade, it's a, it's a thing, it's a, you know, it's a deal, but everyone in the back of their mind is like, yeah, but you're just going to tell me what I already know. And so, by establishing the Reese character, and by establishing, you know, from the beginning when, you know, the investigation is ongoing, we get to Reese, and how, you know, everyone is, you know, he's on, he's on TV, it's, it's making the news, who is Batman, what is Batman's real identity, hardly, hardly an issue hardly an issue because the whole point is that joke one of joker's things is you're gonna he's trying to break batman's rules you're not gonna kill me you're not gonna kill somebody you're not gonna let somebody die and he does it batman can't save everybody success you're not gonna reveal who you are you're not gonna I, I, you, you know, that's your rule, right? You're hiding behind this mask. This, you know, you're not going to reveal who you are. And yet, he kind of does. You know, like it, it's, it's subtle, but you know, the scene where, where, as Bruce, you know, he he pro- he protects Reese from getting killed by at the at the intersection. You know, Reese recognizes that. Uh, you know, he, he does things that, you know, just further this narrative that he is Bruce, or that he is Batman, over and over and over again. And then at the very end, with Batman taking on the people that Dent killed... You know, like in the in the in the in the moment 
we're presented with this being an, an honorable act from Batman. You know, he is taking on this brilliant, or, or rather, he, he is accepting this, this responsibility. He is taking on, he is doing this so that others aren't maligned by the actions of Harvey Dent. It, you know, he can shoulder that that responsibility and and prevent Joker from, you know, succeeding in in turning Harvey Dent into this crazed madman. But it comes at a huge cost. It comes at destroying the very image that he wanted Batman to be, and it forces him to reveal Batman for what he really is. And it's tough to admit it, even for Bruce, but, you know, you look at the history of the comics and the history of the movies, and by having a Batman, you inherently draw uh, villains, people against him, to Gotham. And... This, you know, the, what he does at the end with Harvey and and accept and taking on the responsibility of these killings is kind of this entire, this character across all mediums and across all iterations kind of accepting like, look, I am most, I'm partly to blame for all the awful crap that's been happening in this city. It's, you know, it's not something that you see in other in these other movies you know it's it's i did this i killed these people i brought you know i let the joker not only feel like he could be here but i gave him authority and power with how i i reacted with how i treated him and at the end, taking on this this mantle, ta- you know, you know, accepting this fate is is symbolic of all of these deaths that, in one way or another, are on Batman's shoulders. So, um, let's look at Rachel. Let's look at Rachel Dawes. Recast as Maggie Gyllenhaal in this film, uh, taking over for Katie Holmes, which I think most people are pleased with. Uh, I, I, I like Maggie Gyllenhaal. I think she's very good in this movie as Rachel. Um, better than Katie Holmes was, but Katie Holmes was okay. I, I think there was... I think there's too much Katie Holmes hate, I guess, is the point. Um, Too much. In this movie, we have Rachel and Bruce, who have kind of gone their separate ways after the end of Batman Begins. You know, he is way too obsessed with Batman, which she tells him as much at the end of the first movie. And if he ever decides to not be Batman... 
uh, she'll be there. She'll be there for him. But as long as he is, then that they can't be together. And and he's fine with this. Like it it obviously hurts because he loves her, but he's fine with this because he doesn't want to put her in any more danger than he has to. He doesn't want to let her be used as this bargaining chip. And I would say that, I guess, I don't know what he'd been doing in the four years between, or three, four years between uh, Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, but it seems to me that it worked, for the most part. Uh, Yeah, Rachel ends up being taken by the Joker, but not because uh, he... But only because the the situation with Dent and that whole scenario kind of threw everything out of whack and involved Rachel uh, in that in that way. So we get this letter from Rachel that she gives to Alfred that essentially tells him, yeah. I care about you, but I'm going to marry Dent. Because for her, it's pretty clear. Like, he can't rid himself of Batman. It, it just, he can't. And, and as much as he wants to hang up the cowl, it's it's almost impossible. He he's so connected to it. It's become so much a part of him that even when he's not wearing the suit, it's it's still flowing through his blood, his veins. And I think that when When you look at the relationship that they have, Bruce wants to be with her. And it's this inner conflict that he holds throughout this whole film. We see him at the party that he throws for Dent. He wants, you know, he brings up, if I, hey, hey you said this, if I ever, you know, stop, step out of this role, we'll, can we be together? And she meant, she's like, yeah, I meant that. And he said, all right, it's, I think it's going to be happening sooner. And, you know, in his mind, I think, his, his, he's saying, he's saying, all right, I, I catch this Joker. I've got Harvey Dent in the, waiting in the wings. I can finally stop. I can stop. And that's, that's what's going through his mind. Then, at that same party... Rachel almost dies. He saves her. She almost dies. Uh, he then mounts up, you know, and, and then he's he, this energizes him, right? He's, he's on his crusade against Joker because he has to achieve what he thinks is his perfect, you know, sunset fairy tale ending. Kill, you know, kill, catch, you know, whatever. Catch the Joker. Hang up the cow. Get Rachel. 
Harvey, you know, takes over as this new white knight of Gotham. I mean, hey, that sounds great. You know, that sounds wonderful. And yet, the whole time, everything after that happens just goes to show that he can't do it. It doesn't matter how much he's going to try. He cannot separate himself from Batman. He cannot do it. He tries, he tries, he tries. They do catch Joker, and just, you know, when he's he's feeling like, okay, I got this, I'm... I, I All of a sudden, Rachel's missing. Harvey's missing. And it's not over yet. Not only is it not over, but... What was supposed to happen, the, the the future that he thought of, it can't happen anymore. Rachel's dead. Now he doesn't have her at the end of this. You know, he, She's not the light at the end of this hallway anymore. Harvey, this guy who's going to, you know, succeed him, succeed him? No. He's not, he's crazy, he's killing people, and and then he dies. He's killed as well. The two main, you know, epilogue moments that he wanted, that he was striving for, are ripped away from him by a Joker, the Joker. And so at the end of this movie, not only has he just agreed to, you know, be the, you know, take on the responsibility of all of Harvey's killings, he no longer has the love of his life waiting for him. He no longer has his successor ready to step up. So he can't set aside you know, taking on being Batman. He just cannot do it. And at the same time, he, he has to because in a, in a way he knows that it's because he's Batman that all of this is happening. As his admittance to agreeing to, to take responsibility for these murders indicates. Which is why when you see The Dark Knight Rises, it's, it's you know, he he's kind of just letting... Things run their course at first. He's just frustrated and and pained by everything. You know, he he tried to be this symbol. He tried to be, you know, a guiding force in Gotham. And it kind of worked, but it kind of didn't. And... As much as he inspired this city to to be better, and Harvey is part of that evidence, part of the evidence for that. The 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 fake Batman are evidence of that. People wanted, people looked up to him. People cared about what he was doing. They appreciated what he was doing for their city. And yet, it didn't matter because Rachel died. Harvey was turned. To, to, to quote unquote the dark side and died 
you know, the commissioner was killed, ju- the judge was killed, many, many people were killed. People kept dying all around him. So what was the what was it all for? And at the end of the Dark Knight, I th- I think part of him <clears throat> thinks that I take on I I you say I killed these people, and now I I can't be what I was before. I'm no longer this symbol for good. I'm no longer you know. You know, you're not going to see the bat symbol in the sky anymore to remind people that I'm out there because it's no longer making people feel safe. So now they kind of force him to to hang it up at the end. He he's forced to set aside Batman because if he doesn't who knows how much worse how much more awful how many more awful things are going to happen because he's because of him. So Rachel Rachel gives Alfred this letter saying I'm not leaving Harvey. And her death didn't prevent Alfred from wanting to give Bruce the letter, right? We see him put the letter with coffee or something, uh, and then it's it's that's not you know he he was going to give it to her, give it to him despite her death, because it's the truth and because he he need, deserves to know, but it's it's this inner reflection from Bruce where he, you know, kind of reflects on, or not uh, less reflection, but more just like despair that she was going to leave him, he tells Alfred. She was going to leave him for me. He and, And, you know, he's like, Dent can never know. We can't tell him. And... In that moment, Alfred realizes that he can't tell Bruce, right? He can't know what was going to happen because he sees the place Bruce is already in. He, He knows that he's already taken and suffered the slings and arrows of of being batman it's beaten him down again and again he has been being put he's being pushed further and further to his limits by joker and maybe you know, maybe he could have, uh, maybe he wouldn't, wouldn't, you know, like, succumb completely, learning the truth. But, at the end, 
you know, when this scene is happening, Joker's still out there. Dent is still out there, and we don't really know what's happening with him at that point. And Alfred kind of just sits there, and he's like, you know, um, yeah, I can't, I can't, I can't tell you this. You know, this this isn't for right now. This you are not in a place to learn this. And it's it's a real shame. It's it sucks because you know, un, un, un you know, Rachel wasn't didn't know that it was going to be kind of like her I mean, it was it was definitely like a goodbye letter, but it, she didn't realize it was going to be in conjunction with her death. But you know, she really wanted him to know because if he knew that she wasn't going to leave Harvey for him, then, you know, he wasn't going to, he didn't need to push himself. He didn't need to go so far and risk so much to get rid of the Joker, to get, you know, to, to finish and wrap up his crusade as Batman. But, in a way, I think the letter and what it represents is a little, a little contrived, maybe, maybe. Um, it's a little too simple, almost. You know, Rachel's character in the movie does at times feel like she's being kind of just used to create tension between Harvey and Bruce and i think in some ways she is and, and you know she's used by the joker to create um drama out of out of personal relationships that have been established already but more than that and i think the point of her in this movie and why she's here and what what she serves the plot as it's <clears throat> following her arc in the film is a little I mean, it is quite romantic in nature, and, and, you know, as the female character of the movie, that is uh, not the best, but I will, I, I don't, I think there's more to it than just being used to pit Harvey and Bruce against each other. There's a line she says early on to Harvey that said, uh, to the effect of, if they're not shooting at you, you're not doing your job right. Which is kind of funny. But, I mean, this is no just throwaway line. Like, that's Batman. She's just, it's Batman, right? Batman shot at all the time. And I think at that point in the movie, and later on when she talks to Bruce, and, you know, he says, hey... If I really can get this, you know, hang up the the cowl, if I really can stop put us put Batman away, 
are you still going to be there? She says, yes. And this, you know, this line she says comes before then. I think I'm, I'm interpreting that at least as she still really does love him, right? She says as much and she still, given the option at that point in the movie, wants to be with him. But this is coming on the heels of a few years now where she hasn't really been involved with Bruce and Batman. And now she's with Harvey, who is basically doing more than Batman could ever have done, which Bruce admits, without wearing a mask. And so... They have this conversation at the at the restaurant where Harvey remarks to the effect of, you know, surely Batman doesn't want to do this forever. Surely, you know, he's looking for someone to follow in his footsteps, to take up the mantle when he's done. He can't do it forever, which is true. And it leads to... And I, th- I think this revelation that Rachel has of like, well, <laughs> maybe Harvey isn't this this guy that I can be with either. You know, maybe he's not <clears throat> going to be able to settle down and ever look put this life away and, and set it aside. It's, but what happens is right after the conversation she has with Bruce, Harvey pulls her aside and says, I don't want that. I want to be with you. <clears throat> he asks her to marry him, in as many words. And it comes from him, and he she, she doesn't know what to say, or how to respond, or how to answer at that moment. But you can see that Harvey took the step that Bruce never could, never would. And I think she realizes in that moment that she's just been fooling herself, even five minutes before then, fooling herself into thinking that Bruce is ever going to be able to set aside Batman. There's no evidence supporting that. He took care of Ra's al Ghul. He took care of Scarecrow. And even when Joker wasn't out gallivanting around. He didn't put it away. Even when she and Harvey were knocking it out of the park, putting away all these mob bosses, mob underlings, mob guys, he was still at, he, you know, he still didn't put it away. And not only that, but just his mere presence breeds these kind of individuals like Joker. And it's a cyclical, parasitic relationship that they have with each other. And yet, and then here's Harvey saying, you know, I'm not that way. I mean, not explicitly saying that, but implicitly saying, I'm not like that, right? I want to settle down with you. I want to spend my life with you. I want to be with you. I'm not going out at night <clears throat> wearing a mask. He says that at the dinner. You know, if I was, you know, if I was going out at night 
you know, somebody would notice. He's not doing that. He's he's choosing to to spend his time with her. He's choosing to be with her and to take down criminals the legal way. And as Rachel continues through the film and, and, you know, she nearly dies and, like, Bruce saves her from the Joker after she's thrown out of the out of the penthouse and she kind of is just like her reaction is absurd that they fell all that way and she's just kind of like well thanks for catching me it's ridiculous but it fits the situation for their characters because she's saying oh this is what life with Batman is like I'm constantly in danger my life is going to be on the line but and then at the end, it's just like, oh, well, you know, it's fine. Just another day. And it's 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 kind of exhilarating in a way. You know, if you have that part of you that, that desires to have your life put on the lot, put in danger every other day. But it's it's not, no one wants that. Because it only takes one time for it to go wrong, and you're dead. Whereas, with Harvey, yeah, it's not the safest situation either, but it's a hell of a lot safer than with Batman. And, you know, it just it all kind of comes second nature to him to be this lightning rod for these crazy people, these absurd, powerful, unique, ridiculous individuals, and this whole party sequence kind of hammers that home into her head, and that's why she decides, I can't, no, I can't be with him, I'm going to be with Harvey. So let's then let's touch on and maybe this is one of the last things Gordon Gary Oldman who I love in this movie I love as Gordon Jim Gordon I think he's great he goes from uh head of the major crimes unit in this film to commissioner finally commissioner uh which is great. Uh, unfortunately, it comes at the expense of the actual commission, commissioner being killed. But, uh, you know, you win some, you lose some. At one point in the movie, uh, as I mentioned, Joker, totally cool with trying to kill the mayor in broad daylight, as he does. And in the process, he fails because Gordon jumps in the way. So, there's this... They know, so so at as far as I'm aware, what I've under, understood from the film, the police know that the mayor is a target. Uh, they saw, I think Joker has, leaked, has left clues. They have a lot of security in place. 
They're monitoring the windows for snipers. Uh, Batman, Bruce Wayne, technically Bruce Wayne, not even Batman, is on the case. He goes to this apartment that he's able to find off of the thing, Prince of the Bullet, and so on and so forth. And he finds just a scope, not a gun, just a scope. The blinds are on a timer. Blinds go up. The security sees the scope and fires at it. Then you have on the ground the the salute to the air. And on the second, I think it's the second, maybe the third shot, we we get the reveal that it's that the Joker is one of the officers down there. Turns to fire at the at the that the mayor. This happens after the sniper rifle has been revealed. So the the um the uh they're on guard. So they they've already seen the scope, but this is like split seconds. Like we're splitting hairs here. Scope is seen. They fire. I think scope reveals first fire, second fire turning to shoot and trying to kill the mayor. I think that's the sequence that happens. And Joker turns to shoot him. Uh, I think, And he's got like other people there with him on his side too. And again, like this is saying like, how did he get into this police officer's uniform? How did nobody see him? Pretty unique scarring on his face that, oh look, happens to resemble the guy who's like terrorizing the town. Again, this is practicality eh but functionality of in service to the scene great and you get gordon throwing himself in the way and and i don't there, there's no evidence in my opinion that proves that like the way he pr- like steps in front of the mayor has anything to do with where he thinks the shot is coming from it looks like he just tackles the mayor to the ground and puts himself in front of the mayor relative to the rest of the street in front of them. So he gets shot. Joker fails. One of the few people he fails to kill throughout the film. You know, stopped by Gordon. This is not the first time that that will happen. And... It ends up being, it end, what ends up happening, Gordon is perceived dead. And <clears throat> he doesn't tell anybody, or it, it's never revealed if, who, he, who actually knows this. Clearly it wasn't Dent. <clears throat> Clearly it wasn't the mayor. Wasn't his family. So, wasn't Batman. So if anybody knew, it was his um, his untrustworthy, uh, shady cops. And all of this in service of 
the plan to lure the Joker out with Harvey. Now, this is a pretty convoluted plan. I'll be honest. So, if the plan is... Well, I don't think the plan is for Gordon to be fake killed. I think the plan is just... is There's just a Harvey plan. Gordon's fake death... Uh, was happenstance and happen just what I it felt like more of a spur of the moment like all right nobody tell me tell him I'm alive nobody saying I'm say I'm alive assume I'm just dead and yada 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 because what ends up happening Harvey reveals himself to be Batman it's a lie I am the Batman which is funny. It's great that this came out the same year as Iron Man, which also had I'm Iron Man. So crazy that both and like completely opposite intentions behind these two two reveals. So Harvey transported to prison brings out Joker. Of course, it's, I mean, a hundred percent, he's gonna come out with this declaration. He's going to attack and try to reveal and and get a hold of of dent and at this point as we later learn he thought it was dent he believed it until and then you know you see him recognize batman's batmobile and he gets this look on his face like well wait a second if i'm about to kill batman which he doesn't want to kill like if i'm about to get catch batman how is that Batman? And so it's it's this double, which is a you know which the cops were like intending for Batman to come as well, like they had their plan in place, but they knew Joker was gonna Joker, and Batman was gonna Batman, and so you get to the point where. There's this huge, huge action sequence, this huge set piece between all these trucks and Joker, and he's got a rocket launcher. Um, they are diverted down onto this lower Fifth Avenue. Uh, they they come back above. You know, the helicopter is is ripped out of the sky by a wire hang, hanging across the buildings. Uh, you know, there's a lot of like conveniences and coincidences that that work perfectly in the moment and then you have batman wrenching these plans you know he upends the freight truck the freighter truck that that joker's in that he's driving it flips on its head he and then you get this great scene, this great conflict with Joker just getting to his feet. He's got a gun in his hand. He stops in the middle of the street as Batman drives toward him and he wants him to do it. He wants him to hit him because that that will just destroy who he is, what his entire being is. He's not going to kill people. He's he's he'll, 
he's definitely led people to their deaths. He's definitely the cause of people dying, but he's never, you know, you know, killed people. And he can't do it this time either. He veers out of the way. You know, he he falls off the bike. Uh, one of Joker's goons like tries to op- take off the mask and he gets shocked. And Joker's like, no, 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 this is me, this is me, this is me. And just as he's about to do it, who prevents him again but Gordon? It's Gordon. It's always Gordon. And this, like I said, like some of these plot contrivances, tough to tough to swallow, and some of them, even in the moment, you're like, eh, would that really have happened that way, that perfectly? But when you're in the moment, it just it feels right for most people. The magic trick works, you know. The, the, with the score and the background, the steadily building engine of the bike, the, the the tension mounting, the confrontation between Batman and Joker, the reveal of that Jim Gordon is alive, the the, the concern over Dent and, and, and the slaughter truck and the rocket launcher and you know the the Joker like appearing behind the old guy to like shoot to shotgun the the, the security guard in the face, like all these moments coalesce in in a brilliant action sequence. And I think that for all the you know it, it's I think any movie you can you can sit back and pick apart and tear down because everything nothing's perfect you know there are plenty 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 of mistakes in all movies and this one isn't isn't without its own mistakes yeah I think Rachel Dawes is a little shallow relative to the rest of the film. I think her, her arc is okay, but I think there's more to it than than what there should be more to it. I think that a lot of the setups and, and sequences are incredibly convenient. Some of the like the entire sequence with Lao goes perfectly to a T. There was absolutely no hiccup throughout that entire sequence. Which, you know, Batman is a schemer, as, as they say. And uh, there's the, the uh, age-old line that, you know, if Batman has time to plan, he can, he can do anything. You know, if it's Batman against anybody else... The first question I remember hearing a lot online and, and like during those debates, like, well, does Batman have time to plan? Because he's he's a schemer. 
He's he he plots, he plans, he he you know, he he's a detective kind of in a way. And So so you know, I I can forgive these slight and and maybe not even always slight problems because I think for me what matters most is the feeling and the emotion that the film leaves me with. There are some movies where meticulous attention to detail are necessary and beneficial. There are some movies where it's irrelevant and, you know, it, it depends on the movie and how it's presented. It depends on who makes the movie. It depends on what the movie's about. And what what matters is if it works. If it works for you, and it's not going to work for everyone. Clearly, it didn't work for, you know, Copenhagen's Air. Uh, clearly, it didn't work for uh, a lot of people. But it, it worked for an overwhelming majority. You know, this film has a plethora of fans. It is routinely considered the best comic book movie. And it is routinely considered one of the best films, hands down. It is number four on IMDb's top 250 of all time. Uh, It is on Letterboxd. It is the... um, Let's see, 12, 24, uh, 27, 31, 2, 33rd highest rated film on Letterboxd of all time. And it is fifth in the decade of the 2000s, which includes Band of Brothers TV series and Planet Earth TV series. So, I mean, I mean, it's it's heralded by almost everyone, a, a majority. Uh, in the Letterboxd Top 250, it is number 14. I didn't realize. I just noticed that. That's neat. It is number 14 in Letterboxd Top 250. It's, uh, there, there's, again, like... I don't need to tell you how much people love this movie. They do. It's it's overwhelming. The question is, how does it overcome its shortcomings? It does it by feeling right. And, you know, that means a different thing to different people. Uh, there are plenty of movies, plenty of beloved movies that have, like, really glaring plot holes. And, you know, you can find you know, articles and lists and so on and so forth that that hammer that home and, and, and make that apparent. And this one isn't without its own without its own plot holes. It, it's as a film, it's as a film that is given so many uh, put on so many lists that has been raised to such a pedestal, how do you not have people trying to tear it down? That is what happens. Films like Citizen Kane, best film of all time, 
tons of detractors who are like, ah, oh, it's boring, uh, blah, 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 you know, whatever. It has its problems. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, some of the some fans will get a little crazy. They'll they'll yell and scream and threaten you if you don't love their favorite movie, which is absurd. But in 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 a perfect world, in uh, with 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 people really understanding and recognizing that others have different opinions than them. It's completely okay to ignore the problems with movies that movies have. If you love them, if you if you care about them, it's also totally okay to acknowledge the problems and still love them. And it's fine to acknowledge them and not love them, even if everyone else does. You know, just because I love The Dark Knight doesn't mean everyone else has to. Doesn't mean that if you don't, that, you know, we can't be friends or or that, you know, we have nothing to talk about or that we can't agree on a different movie. Like I said, this guy, Copenhagen's heir, like, he doesn't, he doesn't love probably and seems to actively hate The Dark Knight as evidenced by his, his review. And that's totally fine. I'm, I'm totally cool with that. He loves the Lord of the Rings, and I love the Lord of the Rings. So, you know, his favorite movies, I love. Just, you know, maybe not as much as The Dark Knight, but I still love them. We have, you know, to find someone who absolutely disagrees with you on every single movie, you're not, you can't. The same way you're not going to find someone who agrees with you on every movie. And to try to find that and to try to believe that everyone else should is is folly. So I, I love The Dark Knight. I loved getting to see it again in theaters. And I think that... I'll still love it 10 years from now. 30, 40, 50. But I'm I'm also hoping to find movies just as good. I think that I you know in the same amount of time there's just as good a chance that I will find you know like in 2015 I found Mad Max Fury Road, which matched The Dark Knight for me. You know who who's to say when the next one of those will be? Might not be seven years after that. So you know. Couldn't, might might take me four more years to find another film that gets another gets a hundred score. Could be next year or who knows. So uh, that has been my review for the Dark Knight retro review. 
you know, um, I don't know. If anything, I hope I might have illuminated one or two things for you that you hadn't thought about or, or cast something in a different light. I will say, I saw another review on Letterboxd uh, that talks about the Joker as, um, oh man, uh, a, a woman. Let me see if I can, I'm gonna, I'm gonna link both of these reviews in my show notes if you would like to take a look at them because I should. Uh, let me see. Hmm. It is one of the more popular reviews, but I don't. Anyway, makes makes the Joker out to be. Man, I really want to know. I just want to get the terminology right. I don't know. We will. Um, I'll add it to the show notes, and that's that's about it. I don't see, unless I liked it on here. Maybe I did. Nope. Nope, I didn't. Damn it. All right, all right, that's that, that's the end of today's episode. I, I really like, I, I'll, I'll attach two reviews from Letterboxd to the show notes of this one. And uh, I really urge you to check them out. They, whether or not you agree, you know, I, I think they both provide very different perspectives on the film that I had never fully understood before, and uh, m- you know, worth looking into and, and and you know, testing your own perspective against. So, thank you. Uh, for listening and uh, now the outro courtesy of Meg Berquist thank you for listening to today's episode if you would like to listen to more episodes you can find this podcast at circleoffilm.com or on iTunes don't forget to rate and review if you'd like to follow Ryan on Twitter you can find him at circleoffilm or contact him through email at circleoffilm at gmail.com you can also support the show at patreon.com slash circle film for as little as eight cents an episode. Thank you again for listening and have a week. So long, farewell, I'll be the same goodnight. I know she'll never leave me, even as she fails.